The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. We're in John 15, one of the most famous and powerful portions of scripture that you'll find anywhere in your Bible. And, And here, Jesus has already shared with his disciples the Last Supper, and they've gotten up from the table. They've left the upper room, and they're together making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to be confronted by Judas and be betrayed and handed over into the hands of of the Roman soldiers, and they'll lead him away. And so we're in between the upper room and Gethsemane, and as Jesus travels with his disciples, they pass through several vineyards, and he takes up a vine, and he begins to share his heart with his disciples. And let's keep in mind, he knows that his time is short. And whenever you know your time is short, your words tend to carry more weight and significance. And so every word that Jesus speaks in these chapters of John's gospel is is pregnant with meaning. And so we want to drink in everything that he wants to say. And and I was tempted, I'm not going to do it, but I was tempted to just camp out on verse 9 and preach a whole sermon on verse 9 because it's so good. And we did that a couple weeks ago. But you just have to hear it. Listen to what Jesus says. And we're picking up mid-flow, mid-conversation. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Let me say that again. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Let me tell you something. You are loved. Now let what Jesus said sink in. As the Father loves him, he loves you. Think of the measure of that love. I think we can all get on board with the thought that God the Father loves God the Son, right? The first and second member of the Godhead, this eternal being, three persons in one essence, lived for all of eternity past in unbroken fellowship, that God the Father would love the God the Son is, of course, it's obvious. It makes perfect sense. And I can get on board with the fact that that Jesus would love the world, right? For God so loved the world. And maybe you can get on board with that too in in a generic sort of way. And maybe you would be so bold as to say, and I believe and I'm, I'm confident that God loves me, that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But to think that Jesus loves me to the same degree and with the same passion and, and with the same fervor that God the Father loves him. Now, that's, that should blow your mind. <laughs> I mean, God's love for you is unfathomable. David described it as being higher than the heavens and deeper than the seas. Jeremiah said God's love is everlasting and never-ending. Isaiah said it's unfailing. Paul tried to describe the dimensions of it, and and he got tired of describing the width and the breadth and the length and the height of God's love, and he goes, oh, it surpasses knowledge. God's love is fathomless, and it's boundless, and it flows from heaven to your heart. And you need to know tonight, right now, in the depths of your soul, how much God loves you. Not just because it's good theology, but because it will impact your life in real ways, in practical ways. It can change your whole world. You see, we live 
in a love-starved world. And people, when they are hungry for love, when they are thirsty for love, which we're all born that way with a desire to to love and to be loved. And and when you're searching for love and starving for love, you you can end up doing all kinds of foolish things in your attempt to feel loved. You'll end up going to the wrong places. And and one of the ways that our longing for love manifests itself is is through feelings of insecurity. You know what insecurity is? It's that feeling inside you that says, who you are is not enough. And some people, they'll spend their entire lives chasing the approval of those around them so they can just feel like they're enough. They think, if I could just get them to like me, if I could just get them to approve me or to affirm me, if I could just break into that circle, if I could just earn their love, then I'd feel like I'm enough. But if you've ever chased those carrots, you know that it never works. I mean, have you ever bought something you didn't need with money you didn't have just so you could impress people you didn't even like? (laughs) Where does that come from? It comes from this feeling of insecurity. Now, the ironic thing about trying to build your your self-worth on the opinions of others is is that when you look around, many of the celebrities, these people who have millions of adoring fans, the most famous people on the planet, some of those people are also some of the most insecure. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, how many celebrities who are adored by millions of people simultaneously struggle with It's not enough, it's not enough. Why is that? Because they've tied their sense of self-worth to views or clicks or subscribers or likes or follows. And as those numbers fluctuate, so does their feeling of worth. You see, when you build your identity around the applause of men, you'll always be unstable because crowds are fickle. And their love ebbs and flows. Someone once told me this, and I love this. If you live for men's approval, you'll die from their rejection. Somebody needed to hear that tonight. If you're living for their approval, as long as you have it, you'll feel good. But the moment they reject you, you'll feel like you're going to die. Now, God's love is altogether different. It's constant, it's secure, unlike the fickle love of the crowds of this world. His love doesn't ebb or flow, it's just there. And the more you learn to stand in it, the more you learn to root yourself in the love of God, the more free you'll become from needing to chase the approval of your boss or that peer or that friend or that parent or whoever. You won't need men's approval. Why? Because when you have heaven's applause, you don't need to chase man's applause. Somebody say amen. So so here's a real practical application of rooting yourself in the love of God. It frees you from this feeling of insecurity. Let me give you one other thing that the love of God does. When you know how much God loves you, the other thing it will do is it will drive out fear from your heart. John put it like this. This is 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Let's read this together out loud. It's in your notes. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So notice what it says. Perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because there's this element of 
torment in fear. When your heart is gripped by fear, your world is characterized by pain and torment. How many of you have been tormented by fears? Many of them unrealized, unfounded. Our fears prey on and feed on all of these worst case scenarios. And you call a friend and, or a spouse and they don't pick up the phone. And, and, and five minutes later, you've convinced yourself that they've been in a horrible accident and you've just gone down this rabbit trail of fear. And, and, and meanwhile, they just didn't see that their phone was ringing. Our fears torment us. And that's just the way the devil wants it. But when you really know in your heart that God loves you, let me show you how that frees you from fear. It drives out the fear. Why? Because you know that your heart and your life and your future are all in his hands. You see, when you know God loves you, you don't have to fear the rejection of men anymore because you already have the approval of heaven. So I'm not fearing you because if you bow your knee before God in heaven, then you can stand before any man, praise the Lord. And you don't have to fear the attacks of the devil either because you know that God loves you and he's already defeated the devil on the cross and he's promised you that no weapon formed against you shall prosper and he's promised you that you're going to be more than a conqueror in him. So you don't have to fear the devil. And you don't have to fear even death. Why? Because you know that God loves you and he's promised you that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so all fear evaporates to the degree that you're able to walk in and root yourself in the knowledge of God's perfect love that he has for you. You see, God's love is a powerful, powerful force and it sets you free in all kinds of ways. But notice how Jesus goes on to say in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love or abide in, <clears throat> in my love. You see, his love for you is perfect. But your job is to abide in that love. So how do you do that? Well, according to Jesus in verse 10, if you can keep my commandments, he says, you'll remain or abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Okay, so really simply here, Jesus says, the way to remain in my love is to obey my commands. Now, keep in mind, he's not saying, here's how you earn my love. That's, that's a, a, an important distinction. Jesus isn't telling us, how to earn God's love. You don't earn God's love by doing good stuff or obeying his commands. No, it's a free gift. But you remain or abide in his love by obeying those commands. Listen, God's love for you never changes. But how you experience that love can and will change. And that's entirely dependent on you. You see, it's possible to remove yourself from God's love. That place where his love just flows down. I want you to picture in your mind a waterfall. Picture Niagara Falls, just all this water just cascading down. That's a picture of God's love, just flowing over, spilling from heaven's throne into your life. Now, where you want to be as a child of God is right at the bottom with your cup, just like this, so that love can just fill and flow through you and, and, and spill all over you and, and just go on everything. 
That's where you want to be. But what happens if you take that cup and you step away? You remove yourself from that place, which is why Jude, I think it's verse 21, says, keep yourself in the love of God. Or as one old country preacher used to put it, keep yourself under the spout where the glory pours out. I like that. So we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. And we do that through obedience. Now, obedience is not a four-letter word. (laughs) And I think that some of us have developed what I'll just call an unhealthy relationship with the word obedience. So what Jesus does is, in verse 11, he reframes our concept or our understanding of what obedience is. And notice how he says, I've told you these things so that my joy might be in you and your joy can overflow. And he draws a connection in verse 11 between obedience and joy. Now, most of us might not put those two words together, obedience and joy. I mean, we often associate obedience with things like limitations or rules or regulations. And if anything, we would associate joy more with sin than we would obedience. I mean, this even comes out sometimes in the way that we describe things. We, we associate sin with joy. So as an example of this, I was at a restaurant a while back, and the waiter brought out the menu for dessert. And I noticed that in the description of the chocolate cake, they described this cake as being sinfully delicious. As though the only way you're truly going to be able to enjoy something is if it involves sin. They didn't describe it as righteously uh, delicious, but rather sinfully delicious. Listen, the Bible readily admits that sin is pleasurable, okay? And if, you, if you're not enjoying sin to a degree, then you're probably not doing it right, right? Because the Bible says that sin is pleasurable, but notice, for a season, The truth is, while sin may produce momentary pleasure, it often comes with a lifetime of pain. And somebody could say amen to that. How many people do you know who have traded a few moments of momentary pleasure for a lifetime of regret and pain? Now, on the flip side, obedience often includes short-term pain, but it produces long-term happiness and joy. And I want to point this out to you through God's word. So there's this verse in Hebrews chapter one, verse nine, that I don't think it's in your notes, but it's going to be on the screen. So let's read it together out loud. This is about Jesus. And it says this, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That is why God, your God, anointed you rather than your companions with the oil of gladness. This is talking prophetically here about the ministry of Jesus. And he says, because you loved right, doing what's right, obeying God, and you hated what's wrong, hated disobedience, hated wickedness, God anointed you with the oil of gladness or joy above your fellows. You know, it's interesting, when you look at the paintings of Jesus, whether it's the Renaissance paintings or even modern ones, You never really see him smiling. Have you noticed that? He's usually always very somber and stoic, and he's kind of going like this, and maybe he has a lamb draped around his shoulders. He looks very holy, but he doesn't look maybe like the kind of guy you'd want to grab pizza with. I don't know. And we often associate Jesus with the scripture that describes him as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
And that's part of his character. But we neglect the fact that according to this verse right here, Jesus was also the most joy-filled person who has ever lived. He's the kind of guy you would have loved to be around. He attracted people from all walks of life. You know how I know Jesus was a fun guy? He attracted kids. And kids don't like grumpy, mean, stuffy, old people, the get-off-my-lawn kind of people. Jesus loved kids, and kids loved Jesus. And the thing to note about this verse in Hebrews is that there is a direct link between joy and righteousness. I don't know anybody who doesn't want to maximize their joy. Maybe you exist, but you're probably not the kind of person we want to hang out with. So if you want more joy, then what you need is a lifestyle where you're cultivating righteousness. Because holiness doesn't equal boringness. Holiness equals joy. So after pointing out that following his commands is how we maximize joy, Jesus now is going to go on to remind us of one of his central commands. He says in verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. So this, this idea, this subject, this theme of loving one another, it's it's a chord that gets struck over and over again throughout this, this uh, upper room discourse as it's known where Jesus is talking to his disciples. He mentions it in John 13. He t- says, love one another. He says it again in chapter 14. He, he mentions it again here in chapter 15. And then he's going to say it again in his prayer in chapter 17. Clearly, one of Jesus' primary concerns in the final moments of his life was that his followers would be defined by their love for one another. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus would choose love as the distinguishing characteristic of his followers. Because our world is filled with groups that identify themselves by a variety of different things. Some groups can be identified by their skin color or by their nationality. Some rally around their nationality, the language that they speak. Others identify themselves by the uniforms that they wear, or their shared affinities, or their interests. Some groups rally around a shared set of political beliefs or agendas. But the church is unique, isn't it? Because it's not defined by any of those things that are so common in our world. We come from different places, different backgrounds, Many of you, English isn't your first language. We have different languages, different skin colors, different interests, different hobbies. If we ran into each other outside of this context, we might not find much common ground. Yet we're all bound together by one thing in this room, and that is our love for Jesus and our love for his people. And so when you are rooted in God's love and you experience God's love, that love is then going to translate into love for God's people. That's what Jesus is saying here. You see, your economic status doesn't matter. Your past doesn't matter. Where you come from doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the thing that binds all of us, and it's our love for Jesus and one another. That's what we're doing here. And that's what we ought to, by increasing measures, be defined by in our lives. That the world would look at us and know that we're his simply by the way that we treat each other. Jesus didn't say the world would know us by the great sermons that we preach 
or by the beautiful songs that we write or by the glorious churches that we build. Those things are all wonderful, they're great, they have their place, but the real identifying characteristic of a true believer should always be love. So Jesus says, this is my command. You wanna, you wanna maximize your joy, then fulfill my commands, and my command is you just walk out the love that I've poured into you. Now, how are we to love one another? Jesus doesn't just go vague and ambiguous here, but he gets really detailed and specific when he says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. In calling his disciples to love one another as he loved them, Jesus raised the bar or the standard for all of us on what it means to love one another. And so we're called here to, to dig in and to explore how did Jesus love the disciples and how is that love different from the way the world loves? I'll give you two characteristics. Number one, to love like Jesus is to love unconditionally. There can't be any kind of parameters on your love. You see, this world practices conditional love. It says, I'll scratch your back so long as you scratch mine, right? Jesus' love is unconditional. He didn't just love the lovely. He didn't just love the lovable. He didn't just love when it was convenient. He loved everybody, everywhere, all the time, without condition. And by the way, his love can't be earned. It can't be deserved. It can't be won. And it can't be achieved. It's just something that he gave over and over and over to the least deserving recipients. He gives freely with no strings attached. To love like Jesus is to love unconditionally. And secondly, to love like Jesus is to love sacrificially. Jesus points to this when he says there, what is it, verse 14, where he says, no, greater love has no man than this. Was it 13? than to lay his life down for his friends. He was telling them right there, this is the window into what real love looks like. And by the way, he was about to model that, wasn't he? By going to the cross and dying for his friends. Of course, to lay your life down for others is, is the ultimate sacrifice. It's something that even at the highest levels of society, we recognize and we honor this, this kind of sacrificial love. In, in our armed services in the military, the highest honor that you can receive is the Medal of Honor, right? And to show you how rare this Medal of Valor and Honor, the Medal of Honor is, of the 40 plus million men and women who have served in our armed services since the Civil War, only 3,500 or so Medal of Honors have been given out. The medal is reserved specifically for those who go way above and beyond the normal call of duty to show extraordinary bravery and courage by risking their life to save others in combat situations. Of course, all soldiers put themselves in harm's way, but this medal is specifically for those who go above and beyond the call of duty. Now, if that's true, and that's something that's to be honored and recognized and valued and esteemed, to lay down your life for your friends, then what does that say to us about Jesus' love? Because he didn't just die on the cross for his friends. He also, as he hung there, was paying for the sins of his enemies. You remember what he said? As the Roman soldiers took nine-inch spikes and drove them through his wrists, searing pain, 
lighting every nerve ending in his arms on fire. What does Jesus say? He prays. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the love of Jesus. It goes beyond laying your life down for your friends. In his letter to the Romans, Paul said it like this. Let's read this together out loud. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. Paul acknowledges people will die for the right person. You know, and, and you would probably take a bullet for your family. If you're a parent in here, any parent would gladly give themselves or throw themselves in front of the bus to save their children. And, and maybe you'd be willing to do that for even a friend. And maybe someone that you just see that's in need and that's suffering and you have these extraordinary stories of, of men in the military who jump on the grenade to, to spare the lives of their companions. But how many of you would be willing to die like that? Not for your kids, not for your wife, not for your friends, but for your worst enemy. That's what Jesus did for you. And he shows his love for you in that you are loved. You need, to, you need to not just hear it, you need to feel it. And only God can do that by the power of his Holy Spirit. Take what I'm saying and translate it from your head down into your heart that you are perfectly loved in this moment. There's nothing you could do to make God love you more. There's nothing you could do that would make God love you less. You are already at this moment perfectly loved by a perfect heavenly father. But you're not just loved. You're also called. And Jesus goes on to talk about that in verse 15. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You are loved and you are called to serve him as a servant. That's a great honor. And many of the greatest men in history proudly identified themselves as God's servants. And they took upon themselves the label of a servant. So if you read the letters of Paul, which I think he wrote about half of the New Testament, and nearly all of them, he starts his letters off by saying, Paul, the, the bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you look at the half-brothers of Jesus, both Jude and James. They were Jesus' half-brothers. Why? Because they shared Mary as a mom, but Joseph wasn't Jesus' dad. He was his earthly stepfather, but he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So they were Jesus' half-brothers. And James and Jude also identified themselves as the servant of Jesus Christ. So did Peter. So did John. Nearly all the New Testament authors describe themselves as the servant of the Lord. And yet here, Jesus elevates our status beyond that of servants. And he says, you can call me whatever you want, but I'm going to call you friends. And in calling us friends, Jesus is doing something. He's helping us to establish an identity. You see, the world wants to call you by different names. Have you found that to be true? The world wants to call you maybe a loser. It wants to call you trash. It wants to call you a nobody. 
The devil wants to call you by different names too. The devil wants to call you unwanted. He wants to call you unworthy. He wants to call you broken. He wants to call you stupid. And you know what? We call ourselves by names too. Maybe you call yourself a lost cause. Maybe you call yourself hopeless. But let me tell you something tonight. The only name that matters is the name that your creator has given you. And since he made you, he gets to call you whatever he wants. And he calls you friend. Praise the Lord. Can you say amen to that? That's good news. You're not what the world calls you. You're not what the devil calls you. You may not even be what you call yourself tonight. The truest thing about you is what God says about you, and he calls you friend. And being Jesus' friend gives you access to him. This is how it works. The closer the friend, the greater the access. Your acquaintances, those casual friends, they get a certain degree of access, but your best friends... They get total access to you. They get to hear all the dirt and all the details of everything that's going on in your life. And notice what kind of friend Jesus is inviting us to be. He says, I haven't kept back anything from you. Everything that the Father has told me, I've shared with you. And in sharing his whole heart with us, he is inviting us into his innermost circle of friends. In the ancient world, Roman emperors and Eastern monarchs would often have a very small, select group of people in their inner court that were known as the friends of the king. And these friends of the kings always had access to the king. They sat at his table. They had access to his bedchamber. And he would speak with them before he spoke with his generals or rulers or statesmen. The friends of the king were his closest and most trusted allies. They were intimate with him. To be the friend of Jesus is to be brought into that circle. You don't have to stand at a distance because you have an all-access pass to God. You have friends in high places tonight because you are the friend of God. Now, the fact that Jesus would call us friends is beyond mind-blowing, but it doesn't end there. <laughs> because in John chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus, or John writes, to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. So you're not just a slave, not just a friend, but tonight you're called son or daughter. The son or the daughter of the most highest king of heaven. You can access his throne with boldness. You have his ear. He wants your heart. He's loved you with an everlasting love. He wants you to become a conduit and a channel of his love to others. You are loved and you are called the friend of God and the son or the daughter of God. And then finally, you are also chosen and appointed. Jesus goes on to say in verse 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Just love one another. You are chosen and appointed. He's already told us that we're loved. He's told us that we're called. Now he tells us that we're chosen. You know, each of the 12 disciples was chosen by Jesus. Hand-picked, you might say. None of them 
got the job by submitting an application, handing in their resume, going through all of their, you know, here's, here's all the reasons you should pick me, Jesus. No, they weren't selected because of their outstanding qualities and qualifications. They weren't the brightest or the best, certainly not. Jesus chose them independently of them. Why? Because he wanted them. He said, follow me and I will make you. You see, it's in the process of following him that we become what he created us to be. God has a calling and he, he, has, a, he has an appointment for your life that no one on this earth can fulfill except you. And in choosing you, as you respond to his choice and you willingly submit and surrender and begin to follow him, it is in following him that you become like him and you step into the very reason and purpose for your existence. And just like Jesus chose those 12 guys to be with him, he has chosen you. Peter said it like this. This is 1 Peter 2.9. Will you read this one together with me out loud? He said, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is a beautiful scripture. I hope you enjoyed chewing on that one with me. But notice what he says right there at the front. You are a chosen people. God has chosen you tonight. So you're chosen and you're also appointed. Appointed for what? Appointed to bear fruit. Now that, that fruit, it looks different and it manifests itself in different ways. But in this particular case, the fruit of a believer looks like answered prayers. Jesus says, and this is what I'm, I'm saying, so that the fruit will remain and last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. You were designed to walk with God, to experience his love, to know his appointment, his calling, and to experience answers to prayer. You were designed to hear God's voice, to have a seamless connection with heaven. How glorious is that? These are the truest things about all of you tonight, that you are loved infinitely, perfectly, preciously, powerfully by a father in heaven. You're called the friend of God, the son or the daughter of the most high. You are chosen, a chosen vessel, a royal priesthood. This is who you are, and you're appointed to go and to bear fruit. And fruit is what you were designed for. Now, the whole of the Christian life is learning to act out and become who God says we already are. You are these things, and where there is a where there is a, a gap, where there is a, a disconnect, where there is a delta between what God says and what you've experienced or what you're walking in, it's you who need to repent and say, God, I need to get on board with who you say I am. I'm not who the devil says I am. I am chosen. 
I am forgiven. I am free. I am loved. I am holy. I am righteous. I, am, I have the mind of Christ. I am not a slave to my sin anymore. I am a child of God, and I will declare, praise the Lord. And you begin to walk in, and you begin to, to own your identity as a believer in Jesus Christ. The greatest need in the church today is for believers to become who God says they are. You will one day be conformed into the image of Christ. That is a foregone conclusion. But you can bring heaven down and you can begin to experience heaven invading earth in your heart, in your life now as you partner with the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, will you pray with me? And can we, I just... I want to lead you in a prayer. And so for those of you who who feel the stirring of the spirit of the Lord, I'm just going to, I'm going to lead you in a prayer and I just want you to repeat this prayer out loud. We're going to just speak over our own hearts and affirm what God says is already true. Say, dear Jesus, I don't want to live a shadow life. I want to step into the fullness of everything you have for me. I don't want to be a slave to the devil's lies. And you got to say this part with some, some emphasis. Say, I choose, I choose to, believe to believe what you say about me. Say it like this. Say, I choose, I choose to partner, partner with the truth, to cast down every lie. I am free, I am forgiven, I am holy, I am a child of God. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.